Will you turn back in your uh, worship folder to the reading of Romans 5? It'd be great to have that open as we move through this passage. For the next few weeks, the 5 o'clock, we'll be dealing with, in the sermon, the book of Romans. We're going through Romans 5 through 8. And I think it's a great idea to move through uh, consistently and coherently through this great passage of, of Scripture. I got a special Father's Day gift. Uh, it's unusual. My 38, our 38-year-old uh, son is living in Seattle with his family. Uh, two of our grandkids are there. And he teaches English at Northwest uh, University. And this past year, he was ordained as a deacon in an Anglican church plant in Kirkland, Washington. And he was asked by the rector to preach this Sunday on Romans 5, 1 through 11. So it's just a convergence of blessing to have our oldest son preaching on the same text that we're about to look at here, Romans 5, 1 through 11. Paul has worked really hard up to the fifth chapter of Romans. He has laid out an understanding of our great need for salvation, both those who are religious and those who would consider themselves pagan. And he has made a case that all are in need of the mercy that God has provided through Christ Jesus. He's spoken to Jews, he's spoken to Gentiles, he's made a very strong case for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And he's made that case and now when he gets to Romans 5, he changes his, his pronoun. Instead of addressing you, he says we. And, you know, so often much of our preaching is directed to the individual. I think that's out of an earnest desire for the person to be found in Christ. To understand the grace and mercy that is provided to the individual. But this particular passage of scripture in Romans 5 is addressed to us, to we. In a few moments, Matt will say, the gifts of God for the people of God. And we will celebrate Holy Communion. This would be a great title for Romans 5, 1 through 11. The gifts of God for the people of God. And the Apostle Paul simply lays out what I think are, are six wonderful gifts that we have in Christ Jesus. And he asserts them. He affirms them. He states them. He declares them. There's no equivocation, no ambiguity. There is a simple, a kind of joy in declaration as he has gotten to this point that we are justified by faith. C.S. Lewis wrote an allegory entitled the, the Great Divorce, a bus trip from hell to heaven. And the earthlings were, uh, were like ghosts. They were so thin, so shallow, so weak. 
They couldn't even, when the bus stopped at heaven, they couldn't even get out and step on the grass without their feet bleeding because the grass was so strong in heaven. And at one point in his allegory, he addresses an Episcopal ghost, okay, an earthling. Um, and the conversation goes like this. You have seen hell, and you are in sight of heaven. Will you even now repent and believe? And the ghost feigns ignorance. What exactly do you mean? My religion is very real and a very precious thing to me. I'm perfectly ready to consider heaven if you can give me assurances that you are taking me to a place of greater usefulness and an atmosphere of free inquiry. The solid person, the heaven person, responds, no, there are no such assurances needed. There is no sphere of usefulness. You're not needed here at all. No atmosphere of inquiry. For I will bring you to the land, not of questions, but of answers. And you shall see the face of God. But the ghost insists on free inquiry. He finds the idea of finality stifling. He proudly asserts that he doesn't thirst for any ready-made truth. Listen, said the white spirit, the solid one. Once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for, and there was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers, and you were glad when you had found them, you would become that child again, even now. Ah, but when I became a man, says the earthling ghost, I put away childish things. The solid one says, you've gone wrong, far wrong. Thirst was made for water. Inquiry for truth. We know nothing of religion here. We think only of Christ. We know nothing of speculation. Come and see, I will bring you to eternal fact, the father of our facthood. And that's what I see the apostle doing here in Romans 5. Here's the facts. Here are the assertions. When Luther wrote Bondage of the Will, he had a preface in that to Erasmus, a rationalist, a Christian rationalist, who wanted more debate more speculation, more questions. And Luther somewhat dogmatically said, take away assertions and you take away Christianity. So here's the six assertions in Romans 5. The first is this. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first declaration. We have peace. We have peace. Not as the world gives I unto you, Jesus said. This is a peace that does pass all understanding. This is a peace that we could not achieve for ourselves. This is a peace that only God could give us. This shalom is not a salutation. This shalom is salvation. We are at peace with God. Could there be any greater gift than that to be at peace with God? 
that all hell can break around you. But you indeed are at peace with God, justified by faith. Through his grace, you are at peace with God. There must have been some deep satisfaction for the apostle. And there is some deep satisfaction for me to be able to declare this word of truth among sisters and brothers in Christ who, by the grace and mercy of God, have been brought to him. And I think this is a fact that we keep and need to keep coming back to because we are so easily unsettled and so easily at dis-ease and not at peace. This peace comes from the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Maybe there's no better verse for declaring that. It's the Old Testament statement from Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. And you know who he's talking about, right? He's talking about Jesus here. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Shalom, brothers and sisters. Now, the second a second assertion, the second gift. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Into this grace in which we stand. Standing in this grace. Not a concept. Not a cognitive idea. Not a doctrine, but a sphere, an atmosphere, a location, a reality, a place. I'm standing in grace. So much of the New Testament has to be understood from this position of standing in this grace. That it is not a question of merit. I've come to Christ. I've been justified by faith. Now I work really hard. No. It's that I am standing in a sphere of grace that, that it motivates, that inspires, that enlivens, that, in gift, that gifts. Probably the best place to look is uh, just the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These aren't exercises in merit. These are character descriptions of those people that are standing in the state of grace. That there is a hunger and a thirst for righteousness that will be satisfied, not because we're working hard necessarily, but because we stand in this state of grace inspired by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. We are standing in this grace. And then thirdly, 
Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And thirdly, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, if you notice, uh, in if you've got your Bibles, that word rejoice is uh, a word that that our translators have chosen to interpret, it really is boast. Uh, We brag. We're proud. We boast in the hope of the glory of God. And when you put these three assertions together, we have peace, we're standing in grace, and we boast, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In a way, you've got your past, you're forgiven, you're brought into peace with God. You have your present, you're standing in the state of grace, of God's an atmosphere that engulfs you, that you're immersed in. And then thirdly, we rejoice, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, I realize that that term glory can be a nebulous and vague. I mean, I think we associate glory with aesthetic experiences that bring out a sense of transcendence. It might be Mount Rainier. It may be a place that really is awe-inspiring. And along with that concept of glory in the word of God is luminosity, a brilliance, something that shines. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The sense that glory helps us, causes us to touch the transcendence and majesty of God. And we rejoice in the hope of that glory. Just this morning in dealing with 1 Corinthians 15 and the Sunday school class here at the Advent, to realize that we expect, anticipate, long for a new glorified, resurrected body. A glorified, resurrected body. You and I, that these physical bodies are not the last chapter in our life. This is so hard for Western people to, I think, grasp that uh, we really will have an everlasting life with a new glorified, resurrected body that Christ has provided for us. And that we long for it. We anticipate that. That the resurrection is real. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The fourth assertion. And there's so much we could say about glory, but we'll move on. The fourth. We rejoice in the hope of our suffering. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Now, if you haven't tracked with the peace and the grace and the glory, then this fourth idea isn't going to register. We rejoice in the sufferings, in our sufferings, knowing that that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And that hope will not be ashamed. I don't know, is it a failure on the part of us that we stop with the peace and the grace and the glory and we don't add this fourth assertion that the expectation in the Christian life is to rejoice in the suffering? Because of what it does in us, endurance, character, and hope, 
How many, I mean, I don't find this as much in African brothers and sisters or Mongolian brothers and sisters in Christ, but I do find it among us that we seem shocked by the suffering aspect and that somehow by design, providentially, in the work of God, he's going to use this suffering. Uh, He's not making the suffering, but he's using the suffering in a fallen and broken and twisted world in order to draw out his goodness and to provide a platform for the gospel, just like what he did with his son. And that character produces hope, and that hope will not be ashamed. Because God's love has been poured out. There's two reasons why God's love is so impressive here. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. This is the first time the Apostle Paul mentions the Holy Spirit in Romans. And it's a sign of God's love that his Holy Spirit is poured out. You don't have enough cups in your cupboard to take all that the Holy Spirit will provide. He's pouring that out. It's a Pentecostal kind of description here. He'll pour out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love has been poured out. Remember, this is not what he's, this, he's not exhorting this. He's asserting it. He's not saying, come on, will you have a better grasp of grace? Would you have a better sense of rejoicing and suffering? He's asserting these as gifts. The gifts of God for the people of God. Now finally, I have to move on. Verse 6 For while we were still weak, here's the second reason that's expressive of his love. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God shows his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He shows us his love by pouring out that love through the Holy Spirit. And he shows us his love for dying for us when we were weak, when we were ungodly, when we were sinners, when we were turned as enemies against him. The Apostle Paul just sort of stacks up those descriptive phrases of being so opposite to, alienated from, estranged from God. And that's when God did it for us. At that very point. So then, how could anyone say, I'm too bad, or I'm too screwed up, or I'm just too twisted and polluted for God to love me? That's exactly when he showed his love for you. It's at that point that his love becomes most real, at your worst, my worst. Now, since we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The fifth assertion is that God loved you when, you, when we were really bad, and God will save us because of his resurrection life and power. 
There's a tension here between the already and the not yet. But both sides of that, Paul holds together. When we were enemies, Christ died for us and he showed his love. He redeemed us and justified us by his blood. But now, will he not save us by his life? By the hope of the resurrection? Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is his sixth and final assertion. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Here's my last point. Four times the word boast is used in the first four chapters of Romans. Paul takes apart the boasting, the pride of the religious, those who boasted in the law, those who boasted in their ethnicity, those who boasted in how good they were. He takes that, he uses that word, boast, and he brings that same word into Romans 5. So that now we rejoice, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We boast in our sufferings. And we finally, in verse 11, we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We boast. You get it? This is something not to be bashful about or shy or timid. This is not a corollary to our life. This is not an adjunct. This is not a supplement. This is not a compliment. This is the center conviction an assertion of our life. This is the gift that makes life worth living. This is the gift that will help us in life and in death and in life again. We boast. We boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ whom has given us reconciliation with himself. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.